text tonight, we need to back up just a little bit here to see what the problem is. And it's in verses 11 and 12 where it describes it. It says, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. Now the problem then is Peter's separation from the Gentiles. Uh, They ate foods that were unapproved according to the ceremonial laws given by Moses. And Peter's real belief was that that's not really a problem any longer because when Christ came and died, he set aside all of those laws. So the things that they ate was not really an issue. And so Peter normally practiced that. He would eat with the Gentiles. But there were a group of Judaizers who came from Jerusalem to Antioch and they didn't approve of what Peter was doing. They didn't approve of the practice of eating with Gentiles. And so Peter was afraid of losing influence with people in Jerusalem and he withdrew himself from those Gentiles from their fellowship. So Peter withdraws from them in order to please the Judaizers which made it look like in effect that Peter was in agreement with them. Now to Paul, this is not just a matter of eating and not eating, not whether you put certain foods into your mouth. The most important thing to him is the doctrine itself and the doctrine being undermined, especially when we're talking about the most essential of all doctrines. So the problem here is wider than the scope of what you eat. It's expanded into all of the works of the law. And we're trying to learn here And Paul was trying to teach how a person is actually justified by God. And that point is made very clearly for us in verse number 16. So we look at the scriptures tonight, verse number 15, and we'll read down to verse number 21. Well, let's back up to verse 14 again because that gets us into the thought. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We, who are Jews by nature, and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God." I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Now in those verses, we find the first use of the word justification. Now, the initial arguments going back to chapter 1 have justification in the background, but Paul never actually uses that word or makes a defense of the doctrine itself until he comes to this second chapter. In this part of the letter, he begins to talk about the doctrine itself and how we are justified by faith in Christ. 
Now, as others have pointed out, there are other words that Paul used consistently in his arguments, and they're some of his favorite theological words. One is faith, another is law. Uh, And here in this passage of Scripture, he speaks of faith and law. In Paul's magnum opus, which many consider to be the book of Romans, faith and law and justification dominate the arguments there, especially in the first half of that book. But I want to call your attention for a moment here to verse number 21, which is the theme verse of this section. Paul says, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. I do not frustrate the grace of God. And by that, Paul means I do not disannul or I do not make void God's grace. And another word that we could put in there is the word despise. I do not despise God's grace by teaching that righteousness comes by the law. And that's because if we could be saved by keeping commandments, by keeping the law, then it wasn't necessary for Christ to come. Righteousness in that verse, verse number 21, is the same as has been previously translated in this section as justification. So he says, I do not despise God's grace by teaching justification is by the law. Now to Paul, that would be the inevitable outcome of of Peter's practice. It would lead people to believe that keeping the law is the means of justification. And so this section is, is set here to accentuate that point. The argument to all is that justification is by faith and it's a, it's a doctrine that has to be very closely guarded. We cannot compromise this doctrine or else salvation is lost. Now the problem that we have today though is that Peter's practice is not just the practice of many churches but it is the identifying doctrine of false Christianity. Now Paul's warning here is foundational proof of what happens when justification is not very closely guarded enough. It produced this mega monstrosity that we call the Roman Catholic Church and branched out from that are many different forms of false Christianity. It's built upon a misinterpretation of justification. So the system of works justification is actually the one that builds and builds and builds until you come into the tribulation period, and that whole entire system is going to be, going to be destroyed, thoroughly destroyed by God. Now, I want you to turn, if you would, in your Bible to Revelation chapter 17. And in this chapter, we have a description of ecclesiastical Babylon. And when I use the word ecclesiastical, I hope you understand that that is a word that relates to the church. And here in the 17th chapter, we find that ecclesiastical Babylon during the tribulation period is built upon a perversion of the doctrines of Christ. And the apostate church during that time is called the great whore that's joined itself to the world's government. So looking in Revelation 17, verse number 4, it says, And the woman, and the woman there is a reference to the apostate church, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of the abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. 
Now consider that that passage of Scripture is somewhere off in the future. We don't know how far away that is. It could be around the corner for us within the next seven years. It could be in the next 7,000 years. I have no idea. But you go back to the earliest writings here. We have the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians to these early arguments of justification by faith. And you take a perversion of that doctrine and you let it ferment over centuries and somewhere off into the future, what you have then is a whole world that's filled with false churches that have one scheme, and that is that we can be justified by the works of the law. Now really, this is the central point of all religion. This is what everybody's striving for. How are we going to be right with God? So we have to know the answer to that question. How can we be justified? And there are only two possible answers to it. Either we are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone or we're justified by the things that we do. And so we can see this, Paul having this, I think, a vision of what this whole thing would lead to. You can understand why that he was so incensed by what Peter did. He knew what would happen if this problem wasn't corrected. Now since Paul opened that door of uh, the doctrine of justification and has given us the term... Last week, we took the entire lesson to talk about the doctrine itself. What does justification mean? And we spent our time on that, and that's a very important thing for us to learn because we're never going to understand uh, salvation itself. We'll never understand this book. We'll never understand the rest of the Bible unless we know that very key term. What does the Bible mean when it talks about justification? So we, that, that part of it was necessary. Now, I don't want to unjustly criticize anyone, but justification is a doctrine. Justification by faith is a doctrine that has been pushed into the background of many of our fundamental churches today. I mean, I I am amazed that there are so few Baptist churches that take the time to explain these kinds of doctrines to the people when this is such an important doctrine. And when I say that fundamentalism is is guilty of this, it's not an indictment of any particular church or any particular ministry, but it's an explanation of this widespread problem that exists in the fundamental churches. Now, we agree with fundamentalism when it teaches the fundamentals of the faith, but however strong that the original fundamentalist movement may have been, it inadvertently spawned a future generation of preachers that are weak on the emphasis of justification by faith alone. Now, I'd like to quote to you from uh, Phil Johnson and his article on the failure of fundamentalism. And this article is one that's, the entire article is worth reading and rereading. Uh, we have it on our website, and interestingly enough, the article was originally sent to me by a fundamental pastor in the Bay Area. And he recognized the truths that were in this article, and uh, we, we see those things. We, we see eye to eye on that, I think, although neither he nor we agree with everything that's written there. But the article was written by Phil Johnson, and there are several topics that are covered in that paper. But I want to concentrate on what he says about the doctrine of justification. And understand, he's not against the principles of, of uh, fundamentalism, but he is against the lack of emphasis on this particular doctrine. Now, it's a rather long quote, so you have to stay with me and pay close attention. And you may not understand all of the references that are in here, but that's okay because I think you can get the main point. So he begins in this, um, 
in this section on justification by referring to the textbook on fundamentalism that was written early in the 20th century. This is what he says. Five years after the completion of the fundamentals in 1920, when Curtis Lee Laws coined the expression fundamentalism, a considerable amount of literature on the fundamentals was already available, and most of the founders of the movement, therefore, seemed to think that the fundamental doctrines of evangelical truth had been pretty clearly defined and agreed upon already. That, in my view, was a serious mistake that has never been remedied by any subsequent generation of fundamentalists. I just mentioned that the doctrine of justification was one of the featured doctrines in the fundamentals. And there, of course, he's talking about that collection of 20 volumes that contain the fundamentals of the faith. And so he says, but I also need to say that justification by faith was hardly given the weight such a crucial doctrine deserves. This was the doctrine both Luther and Calvin regarded as the most essential truth of the gospel. But in the 12 volumes, I said 20, I meant 12, but in the 12 volumes of the fundamentals, the doctrine of justification was dealt with only in one short article by Hanley Mool. Meanwhile, there were several chapters on science and the Bible, including one by James Orr, in which he insisted that no violence is done to the text of Genesis if we regard the days of creation as long eons. And if you read all 12 volumes of the fundamentals, you'll discover that the doctrine of original sin, which has always been regarded by Catholics and Protestants alike as absolutely essential to authentic Christianity, wasn't dealt with at all. Perhaps those deficiencies are partly understandable given the historical context. After all, justification by faith and the imputation of Adam's sin weren't at that moment under such direct attack by the modernist the way the inerrancy of Scripture was. But the omissions and the misplaced priorities soon had a noticeable effect in the fundamentalist movement. No less than Billy Sunday the quintessential fundamentalist evangelist of the early 20th century, was wobbly on the doctrine of original sin and fuzzy on the doctrine of justification by faith. The wider fundamentalist movement throughout the 20th century proved to be vulnerable to various kinds of pietism, perfectionism, neonomianism, and the antinomianism of the no-lordship movement. The historic principle of sola fide, as the reformers, uh, Protestant leaders through the end of the 19th century understood it, was hardly given any attention at all in the preaching and writing spun out by the fundamentalist movement in the 20th century. That is profoundly tragic for a movement that was purportedly devoted to the defense and propagation of truth that is essential to the gospel message. No doctrine is more essential to the gospel than the principles of justification by faith, the imputation of righteousness to the believer, the imputation of believer's sins to Christ, the forensic nature of justification, and a right understanding of the principle of sola fide. But within the visible fundamentalist movement today, you can hardly find a pastor, much less a trained layperson, who is prepared to give an accurate account of any of those doctrines, even at the most basic level. That, in my view, is where the seeds of disaster were first sown in the early fundamentalist movement. There was a lack of clear definition from the beginning. The distinctions between fundamental and secondary truths were never completely clear. 
That should have been one of the first things on the agenda for a movement that is based on the conviction that some truths are indispensable, essential, even worth dying for. How do we identify which doctrines are primary and which ones are secondary? Yet that was a question that never seems to have come to the forefront of the fundamentalist discussion. Now that is a statement that I think the Apostle Paul would wholeheartedly endorse. He understood the problem of minimizing the doctrine. He saw the problem of perverting it. He saw the problem of sending wrong signals about it. And that's why he approached Peter with this sound reasoning for why that perversion of this doctrine was dangerously, or what Peter's actions, uh, what he did were, was dangerously uh, destructive to the truth. Well, we return to the text then, and I've spent a good deal of time talking around the issue, and we haven't yet come to the explanation of the text. But last week's message, I think, was, uh, that was introduction, and it was necessary for us to see the importance of Galatians dealing with this doctrine of justification by faith alone. And I'm just sorry that we don't have more members of Brian Baptist Church that are here and are honed in on this doctrine and desire to understand it better. I mean, there are so many people that are concerned about all the peripheral issues. They're Uh, Phil Johnson talked about secondary things, and people spend a lot of time on secondary things. I mean, they want to make sure you got everything just right. I mean, your clothes are the right length, and your hair is the right length, and your, your buttons are all buttoned up the right way, and all of those kinds of things. They spend their time on these secondary issues and leave the primary ones go and don't even talk about them. Well, lots of people... Uh, unfortunately, in our Baptist churches have never been immersed into the whole purpose of why Christ came, his atonement, into the grace of God. They don't really care to know about the doctrine. And as Phil Johnson stated, you can hardly find a pastor, much less a trained layperson, who's prepared to give an accurate account of any of these doctrines, even at the most basic level. So I would ask you, you're sitting here in the pews of Berean Baptist Church, Are you able to give an accurate description of this doctrine? Well, if you came last week and you listened and you took notes, then I hope that you can. And I hope as you sit and listen further and uh, get into the doctrine itself as we try to explain it, that that your knowledge of this will be greater than the vast majority of Baptist people that are sitting in the pews. And I can tell you right now, it already is. If you can almost say the word, you know, then most, most of them do. So, um, you, your people, you, you know that Christ didn't die in vain. And, and you're, you're protectors of God's word. So, all of that's by way of introduction. But I, I'm still not done with the introduction. The way that I want to develop our study of these verses is a little bit different than usual. Because what I want to do is give you the entire outline here in the beginning. And then in the next lesson... We're going to go into the verses in particular and break those verses down. So tonight, we're just going to take an overview of the verses, and we'll get into a little bit of it. And I could do all of it tonight if you want to, but midnight's a long way off, and you probably have to work tomorrow, so we won't do that. We're just going to do the overview, and then next week, we'll get into the explanation. Now, number one on the outline, then, is the greatest problem. The greatest problem. Now, in the past few weeks, both the... Republican and Democratic parties have had their conventions and they've selected their candidates for the upcoming election. And I'll confess to you that I watched none of it. 
uh, I'm, I'm pretty much fed up with both sides and don't believe either one of them is telling the truth. But I did re- read the reviews and I read the synopsis and all of those things of the speeches. And both of the parties have identified what they believe to be our country's greatest problem. We have a bad economy. Uh, we're used to getting everything that we want at any time that we want it. And we're just not getting what we want. So poverty is our greatest problem, although poverty for America is about 40 times or 40 scales higher than 90% of the world's population. But we have a problem with poverty. But I would refer you to the book of Job, and there was a man there in the book of Job, and his name is Job, and he was stripped of all of his possessions. His entire family was killed and taken away from him. He lost his health. So he had all the problems that the conventions are trying to solve. No money. Family that he's got a big problem with his family, they're suffering, and a non-existent health care policy. So what did he consider to be his greatest problem? Well, none of those things. His greatest problem was this burning question. How shall man be just with God? After all the things that happened to him, no health care, as I said, family's been killed, unfortunately, and all of his wealth taken away. His big issue is how can I be just with God? And our greatest problem is not the economy. It's not health care. It's not poverty. Our greatest problem is that we are all under the curse of sin. And we are all under the wrath of God. And even the common grace that God provides for all, that's not even enjoyed because we're suffering from this great burden of guilt because of our sin. We're not right with God. We have no peace with God. The Bible says the carnal mind is enmity with God. It's hostile to God. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 in the magnum opus. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not a just man on the earth that does good and doesn't sin. The heart is deceitfully wicked and, a, and desperate, heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, the word of God says. So both the Old and the New Testaments agree with our greatest problem. All of human history agrees with our greatest problem. We don't have peace with God. Now the conventions talk about peace, but there is no peace man to man until there is peace with God. The second part of your outline is the least potential. How can we make the problem go away? Well, tonight we've discussed the method that is attempted by all other religions that are outside of true Christianity. And the solutions that have been tried go back thousands of years. There are all sorts of methods that have been used. It started with fig leaves in the Garden of Eden. That was Adam's first attempt to be right with God. A little bit later on, you find Nimrod, who built a tower that he tried to reach into the heavens, and that's his attempt. It continued with the Canaanites, and they were people that sacrificed their own children to try to appease their gods. It finds its way into the intratestamental period, which gave rise to the do's and don'ts of ritualistic religion. It channels its way through the New Testament till you come to a man uh, that we know of in Scripture as the rich young ruler. And he thought that he could be right with God by keeping the commandments and even thought that he had done that very thing. He thought that he had arrived. 
Then it makes its way into the apostles' ministries through the Judaizers that we're discussing here in the book of Galatians, who thought that you could be just with God by eating or not eating certain foods and by washing your hands and all sorts of other nonsensical traditions that they had invented. And then in the following generations, the Judaizers' successors have invented other ways to be right with God. They added seven sacraments. They elevated Mary to deity. They pray to angels. They say the mass. They finger the rosary beads. And when that's not enough, they tried to do what Martin Luther did before he was converted. They try seclusion and self-denial and self-flagellation, all different ways of being right with God. But none of them, none of those ways is good enough. You read the scriptures and you can't escape this conclusion, this conclusion rather, that what God requires is perfection. Everything that you do has to come from a perfect mind. It has to be in perfect obedience. There must be a perfect motive that's behind it. And nobody's ever been able to do that. And we don't have any potential to do that. There's no way that we can be released from our guilt by anything that we can do. Now, I like to put it this way, that it would be easier for a cat to be saved than a man. And trust me, it'd be hard for a cat to be saved. They're, they're way down the list of God's redeemable creatures, so it's really hard to save a cat. But it's easier to save a cat than it is a man. You know why? Because a cat doesn't have the rationality to purposely think about this and do it and defiantly offend God. We as humans do. So we have no potential to climb up from where we are and meet God face to face. In fact, God is so repulsed by that, he tells us, and I think this would be the idea, that if you try to climb up to where he is by what you do, then all he does is heat the furnace of hell seven times hotter. And he does that for people who try it and for those who try to lead others to believe that they can do the same thing. And if you want to see proof of that, you just go to the book of Revelation that we just read and read a little bit more about mystery Babylon and the mother of harlots, ecclesiastical Babylon, all of that. Now, one of the important points that we have in this text is that Jews and Gentiles are alike, that both of them have the common problem and both of them have a lack of potential. And as we'll see in our text when we get into it, that uh, having the law of God as a Jew is no more helpful than not having it as a means of being saved as the Gentiles didn't have it. So Paul treats that subject beginning with verse 15 when he says, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentile. And that, Gentiles. And that statement sets up an interesting argument in verse number 17 which causes Paul to ask and answer his own question that if Christ taught that the law could not save... Did he promote sin in the Jews by telling them this when in fact the Judaizers were right when they said that the law was needed? Now, you might have a little bit of trouble wrapping your head around that statement right now, but we hopefully it'll it'll become clear as we look closely at the text next week. Now, thirdly in the outline is the greatest provision. We're failures at making ourselves right with God, and there's none that knows that better than God himself. Now, looking at the facts and the charges that are against us, we come into God's courtroom justly condemned, and there is no justification by using any method that we have. And so God has to move us and free us from that penalty imposed himself. Verse number 16 gives us God's method, and it's the method of faith. It's the imputation 
of Christ's righteousness to the sinner and the imputation of the sinner's sins, his guilt, to the Savior. Now, that's what we call double imputation. Now, in the midst of that verse, verse number 16, it says that we are justified by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ. There you see faith, 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 faith. That's God's method. And it's offered to all people who have both the greatest need and the least potential. Verse number 18 that points out Peter's inconsistency, which is followed by verse 19, that says that faith in Christ is what takes us out from under the condemning constraints of the law so that it no longer affects us. And that's because Christ has satisfied all the demands of the law so that being dead to the law in that verse means that the law has no more conquering power over us. Now later on, we'll also learn that the separation of grace and law does not destroy the utility of the law. And there are some Christians that relish in the fact that they are not under the law any longer, but they're under grace, and they think, well, the thing to do now is just toss all the commandments out of the window. Let's just act like they don't exist. And if you want to know what Phil Johnson meant by neonomianism, that's what that is. That's the belief that the gospel is a law unto itself, so that it has lesser requirements than the moral law. In other words, it's okay if you're deficient. It's okay if you can't live up to the law because the gospel is a law unto itself. That's neonomianism. Then he also mentioned antinomianism, and that's uh, a system that subordinates the law and puts more emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit, the new work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, so that the Holy Spirit guides us without the use of the law. And both of those ideas are wrong. But for now, Paul's argument concerning the law is about neither of those. It's purely a matter of how we're justified with God. And the answer to the question is freely by God's grace, by God's acceptance of the perfect sacrifice of Christ, his obedience to the law, which is counted for our obedience or our imperfect obedience. So in that, we have both substitutionary atonement and the imputation of righteousness. Now, fourthly, there's the greatest promise. Verse number 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the greatest promise is that when you place your faith in Christ, that he comes to live in you. His power works through you. And that faith that we have in Christ keeps on working. It never stops until we come into perfect union with Christ, until we're both body and spirit in heaven. And the power to live the Christian life is no more a product of keeping rules and regulations than being saved in the first place. Salvation and being saved and being kept saved is through the power of Jesus Christ, not our own power. Now, we can look at it this way then, that when we placed our faith in Christ, we were crucified with him. And that means that sin was put away right then. As far as being a sinner in the eyes of God, that was the end of it. We're justified, we are declared not guilty of sin, and we obey Christ not because we're afraid of being punished or afraid of condemnation, but we obey him because the Son of God loved us and gave himself for us. 
That's our strong incentive to serve Christ. We don't serve him out of fear of punishment. We serve him because, as the word of God says, his love has been shed abroad in our hearts. And when you find a Christian that doesn't serve Christ, that is a person who is guilty of the grossest ingratitude. You think about what Christ did for you. The next time you meet a temptation, the next temptation you come in contact with, take just a moment to think what Christ did for you. And then finally, in closing this lesson, there's a theme verse. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And you follow that thought through the text, and you would see there... There's no reason for Peter to withdraw from the table of the Gentiles. And that's because the greater good that is served here is to protect the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Preserve the doctrine. And that is so axiomatic that we simply cannot overlook it. Now perhaps with Peter, he needed to have his eyes open because all that he was looking at was what was going on in the immediate context. He was looking at today, looking at that hour looking at what he did right then. Whereas Paul had this, not a myopic view, but he had this broad view into what he could see in front of him is going to happen if this doctrine is not thoroughly protected and taught correctly as it should be. And now, as Christians, 21 centuries later than when all of this happened, we see what's happened to Christianity. And we see what happened when the doctrine of justification was not protected as it should have been. And when people started turning away from this truth that we're justified by Christ alone and turned to a doctrine that says we can be justified by our works, then you have all sorts of perversions that come out of that. You have, as I said a moment ago, a wild, massive monstrosity of, of these of, of churches that have invented all different kinds of ways of being right with God. Sacraments and prayers to angels and mass that I mentioned, rosaries and bowing before the Pope and all sorts of things that have been added. And those are all ways that they think that they can be just with God. So what do we do? Well, as fundamentalists, and we're not really afraid to use that word, uh, I'm careful with that word because sometimes when you use the word fundamentalist, It identifies you with some doctrines that you don't want to have any part of. Uh, Usually, when you see fundamentalism, people think of, oh, well, Arminianism. And people think of um, um, free will of man and I'm saved by my own decision. I'm saved by walking aisles. I'm saved by all different sorts of things or making faith a work. That's what usually comes out of fundamentalism. But the word itself is not a bad word. As fundamentalist, all it means to us is that we believe the essential doctrines of the faith and there are certain things that aren't secondary. There are certain things that you can't do without. And we believe those fundamentals and we stick by them and what we have to do is closely guard them so we latch on to this truth and we don't become part and parcel of the great deception. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the opportunity to talk about this particular chapter in uh, Galatians. Lord, we pray that you'd give us understanding and give us wisdom as we teach this. And I pray that your people would be very, very concerned about the truth of the word and knowing, Father, that our salvation is found in Jesus Christ and you supply all things that we need. Nothing comes from us. 
Everything is your gift to us. Bless us, Lord, and we pray that you'd give everybody a good week the rest of this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.